Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Hello and welcome to episode 136 of Who Killed. I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. On this week's show, we are going to take a look back at a case from 1978. But before we get started, I want to talk about what I participated in on Wednesday, October 27th, and that was the Walk for Amy. And this was in honor of 10-year-old Amy Mahalovic, who was abducted from the Bay Village Shopping Plaza in Bay Village, Ohio, on October 27th, 1989. I was a 10-year-old and was living in the city that borders Bay, and it was something that was extremely tragic and definitely hit close to home because, of course, these are small suburbs and everybody's parents were extremely worried that they were going to be the next abducted child. And again, this case is still unsolved. And what makes her case unique is that she was actually lured to the plaza. And so this was a premeditated act. This was not some abduction of opportunity. This was something that was planned. And again, unfortunately, she was found dead about 100 days after she went missing. So the walk for Amy was in honor of Amy Mahalovic and her family and the community. And we all hope one day that we'll be able to find the answers to the case that has haunted Northeast Ohio for a number of years. But there's another case that has also haunted Northeast Ohio for a number of years, and that is the missing persons case of Judy Martins. And she was from Avon Lake, but was going to Kent State University at the time of her disappearance. In order to make heads and tails of this case, I have a special guest on this week's episode, and again, that is Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast. They've actually recently done an episode on this case, so Nick knows a little bit about it. And again, it's always a pleasure to have Nick on the show. Hey, Nick. Great to have you back on the show. How are you doing, man? Wonderful, Bill. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing a little working from home today, so to be able to sit here and chat with you and be on the Slow Burn Media flagship show, Who Killed?, well, it's a dream come true, my friend. Well, it's always a dream come true when you are on Who Killed. So the listeners will be thrilled. And, of course, we are here to talk about true crime. And, of course, you're the host of co-host of True Crime Garage, the best true crime podcast out there. And you are, uh, gosh, you are, what, almost 500 episodes in. 530 Holy cow. We'll come out number 530 will come out this week and we also do a show called Off the Record which we are over like 130 of those as well. That's our uh, Stitcher Premium show that people can sign up for. Uh you can figure that out by going to truecrimegarage.com. We got a link on there and you actually get your first month for free if you want to sign up for Off the Record. So, I always recommend Go sign up for free. Listen to it for 30 days. You could probably binge the hell out of it and get as many episodes in as you want. And if you want, cancel. Who cares, right? <laughs> Try it out. <laughs> Take the old Pepsi challenge and see if you like off the record. Take Nick's advice. He always has positive things to say. And, you know, 
being a mentor in this industry, he's been very helpful along the way. And I'm going to uh, talk about a certain case today that I think Nick knows a little bit about, and that is the case of one Judy Martins. And she was 22 years old on May 24th, 1978, and she was a junior at Kent State University and was a major in women's studies. Now, she was last seen walking from her friend's dorm, which was Dunbar Hall, and she lived only 300 yards away in Engelman Hall, mm -hmm. and this was around 2 a.m. Now, Martin's was never seen again. So, that's an interesting question right off the bat. Nick, uh, what's your thought about Judy Martin's walking 300 yards between dorms in the middle of the night and pretty much disappearing from the face of the earth? Well, yeah, there's a very short distance between Dunbar Hall and Engelman Hall, and it was there's a little discrepancy there um, through some of the different reports that I've seen. Some have it as many as 300 yards, some as, as little as 100 yards, uh, which is even scarier. I, from my understanding, the campus, the Kent State University campus has changed dramatically since, uh, when did this case take place? 1978. So yes. yeah, obviously it's grown, uh, by leaps and bounds since then. And back in 78, Look, the the issue with this case has been a couple of things. There there are reasons, right? When we look at these unsolved cases, there are always reasons why they are unsolved. Not that we are handing out any blame here, but in this particular case, the 28th was, or I'm sorry, the, the 24th. 24th was a day before a break. Okay, mm -hmm. so most of the kids you know, 20, 21, 22 year old kids, they're leaving campus on the 24th or on the 25th. So she goes missing and it's going to take a little bit of time to notice that she's even missing because Judy, she lived by herself. So when you live by yourself and you don't have any class that you're supposed to attend that, that morning or that day, it takes a little bit of time for people to notice that, Hey, where is she? So by the time she's reported missing, a lot of the kids had left campus for one reason or another. Again, they're on break. And this is going to kind of hinder the investigation, if you really want to call it that. Uh, it looks to me more like it's campus police kind of checking on a, on a student. And how often are they doing that, right? I mean, <laughs> five, six, maybe a dozen times a week that they're checking on a student that didn't come home. And actually I had found some statements from the, um, from the police chief, the local police chief who was talking about the Martin's case years after the fact and saying, look in the time, all the time that I was there, we were getting a ton of missing persons reports that would come in. And almost every single time it was just as simple as, kid decided to go home, you know, to mom and dad's place, leave the campus for whatever reason and didn't tell anybody or girl stayed at boyfriend's house or boyfriend stayed at girl's house or dorm or crashed somewhere. 
and turned up the next day. So this was something that was really difficult for them because she goes missing, and this is really the only person in the course of years and years and years of this police chief working there that she goes missing, and then there's never they never see her again. They never find her, locate her in any of the cases they they had ever had leading up to that. And beyond that, they had always found the person and and many times within just a few hours. So we get a difficult case here because one, there's delay in knowing that she's missing to report it. So before anybody's even looking for there's delay. And then two, once we go around and start asking questions, Hey, who who saw her? Where was she last? What was she wearing? Those typical questions. Where may she be? Um, by the time you're going around and you have the local PD asking those questions, well, a lot of the people were already gone from the campus. So <laughs> that's going to really kind of screw up your investigation as well. She was supposed to go on some kind of trip. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. She and, was supposed to go to New York with two of her friends. Yeah, and one kind of thing that's a little confusing here in this case as well is that there's really kind of two different stories of of the knowing that she's missing. Okay, so one version has it that she was to go home to her, her mom and dad's house in Avon Lake and pick up a vehicle that... Uh, this would be a new vehicle for her that I believe her parents purchased for her. Um, that was the story from the, the family. Now the story from the friends and PD was that she was to go on this trip and this would be with a couple of her girlfriends go out to New York for kind of like a long weekend and doesn't show when they're supposed to leave for that trip. So they notice something's wrong. I, I don't want to to confuse anyone because I want to be clear here. There's very likelihood that both stories could be accurate, that she was going to pick up a vehicle at some point on that long weekend and also go on that trip as well. So, But I one thing I did do, I, I didn't speak with any of the family in this case. Um, sadly, I going off of memory here, Bill, I believe both of her parents are probably deceased by this point. I know her father is. And I did, she does have a sister, um, which I believe might even be more in my neck of the woods. Um, but I did just kind of voice it on true crime garage that look, one story is coming from the family. One story is coming from, from PD. If maybe you, what we need to do here in, in, in the Martin's case is fill in some of the blanks. And if this is information that is incorrect or wrong, or could be added to what the, the police currently know, then I I'm hoping that the, that her sister and um, the investigating agency are in communication with one another. And I want to be clear about something here too. That's, that's very interesting in this case. She disappeared in 1978. This is very much an active investigation. I, I can say that 110%, which is strange for a case, for a missing person's case this old. The question that I have about Memorial Day weekend, and I wonder if this was 
just something that was in the 70s if they were on quarters or semesters because if they were on semesters there would be a lot less students on campus because school would have already been let out at that point uh, for the spring and if she was staying for the summer then they would have been uh, you know that would have been why she was staying there and that you know summer classes are always less full and campus is not as busy but I am not do you know anything about that do you know if there this was a uh, were they on quarters or semesters do you know no i don't know but from my understanding when school would be out for the summertime in the past years she had always gone back home and stayed with mom and dad in avon lake okay yeah and avon lake you know for for the listeners is only uh i've lived in avon lake before about five years of my life i spent there and uh yeah it's uh about an hour drive you would say from Kent State to uh, yeah. Avon Lake? Yes, it's about an hour drive, and it's uh, coincidentally bumps right up to Bay Village, which mm-hmm. is obviously a place that's near and dear. And uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, the uh, yeah she grew up in Avon Lake, and the whole the whole thing about them not reporting her missing, I mean that really that really is where I think the the whole investigation kind of hits a speed bump right i mean right off the bat i mean when you're when you're not finding somebody or going after like if you don't even realize that somebody is considered missing until a few days have already gone by i mean what do they say the first 48 you know the first 48 hours are the most important and those 48 hours were not even being you know investigated i would say right. that she her killer had a pretty good getaway uh, time frame and again that's just so weird that she would be I'm, I'm so confused on the fact that she would disappear in such a short um, walk from her dorm you know from her from the dorms I mean it's just so weird and um, I just think that Judy herself I mean she was I'd mentioned before she was a major in uh, women's studies, but she was also an art major. And one of the things that I saw that she was wearing when she disappeared was a red wig that they were just kind of goofing around with. And, you know, it just kind of brings you the innocence to uh, understand what is going on here. I mean, this is just a 22-year-old girl. She's an RA. I mean, clearly a responsible person. I mean, if you're an RA at college, you are generally not the party girl. Um, that's just the way that I've always seen it. When I was in school, the RA was always the responsible one. That's the person you go to for help in any situation. So she was clearly responsible. Now, she also, when she went missing, and they did finally go into her, uh, you know, her dorm room all of her belongings were still there like none of them she had no money missing she didn't have any uh, of her makeup was still there I mean it didn't look like she had taken off and nobody thought that she would be you know a runaway or anything like that I mean do you think there's any chance that she could have just decided to pick up and leave you know I mean we you've talked about the you know the the Brian uh Schaefer Schaefer case in Columbus and 
you know, that's still, you know, that's an interesting case too. And, you know, he's never been seen again as well. I mean, is there any chance in your mind that she could have just decided to pick up and leave? Well, I don't want to squash the rest of the story for you, um, but uh, zero. I would put the I would put that number at zero for uh, Judy Martin's. Um, and from what I've been told by this is secondhand information, um, but maybe even thirdhand information if we're if we're being spot on here but judy was in my mind the perfect college student okay you're right about the uh what you said about her being responsible uh she absolutely was responsible but what i mean by my my vision of the perfect college student would be judy like she she could be the life of the party she could be the most entertaining, outgoing person when she didn't have to be responsible. You know, when it came to her responsibilities and her duties and her and her schoolwork uh, and her classes and uh, working toward her degree, everybody says she was she was right on. There was no one better. Like she was committed and she was responsible. But when it came to being outgoing and uh, being the life of the party, she could do that. She could flip that switch, and a lot of people can't. And that's something that she could do, and that's why I think she was such a likable person. She was a person that had many, many friends. She was very popular. And um, you're right, the, the the confusion here, as I pointed out and as, as you're understanding, is the lapse of time is really has really kind of messed up this case. Um, you know, it there there's also a lot of weird stuff on this case as far as when you look at it from all of these years later, right? When you look at it 40 years later, it, it takes on a different appearance than what it had in 78, 79, and 80. So when people fire up the old internet machine and get looking at this case, the first thing you're going to see is a, a photo of of Martin's, and she's she's smiling, you know, uh, good looking college kid. Uh, but the the strange thing is, she is kind of wearing a costume that night. Almost, she's wearing a red wig, and mm -hmm. she's dressing herself up. And from the people that saw her that night, one thing that I I found fascinating about this case was. Everyone kind of kept using the same word, which was bizarro to me. They kept saying, yeah, she was kind of dressed like a hooker or sometimes she would dress like a hooker. Now, what I kind of took from that bill was that I think that that was maybe even her words, that this was like uh, a get up that she would put on to go out and party. Now, like this is my hooker. This is my hooker look. Right, but the, the weird cheek. thing to me is, exactly, because the weird thing to me is when you see that outfit and when you see how she was dressed that night, it's not Julia Roberts' pretty woman standing on the on the street corner, hooker, right? This is this is like a plaid shirt and some uh, some weird jeans and, and a red, a red uh, this is, wig. This is more like the Skid Row type of hooker. hooker. Well, no, I I wouldn't even say that. Like I I don't I don't even understand using that word. 
Okay, and I want to be clear here. I do think that was her word or her friend's words. These these are not mine. Sure. Um, to me, it looks to me more like a um, you know, small town girl from a from a nice area, and that's about as that's about where her mind goes when she thinks of a hooker, like uh, or, or how one would dress, uh, how a sex worker would dress. So, um, but that statement kept kept coming up with any of these people that saw her that night. Now, what I think is bizarre about this case is that when you review it 40 years later, almost all of the missing persons, posters, flyers, and online uh, information about her features the photo taken from that night where she's wearing this wig. So she doesn't actually even look the way that she actually looked. You see what I'm saying? How how weird that is. Like you're going to put out a picture of how one looks over and over again to try to get some information to uh has anybody seen this person well the the one that that goes around today is primarily a picture of her wearing a wig and smiling and wearing a bunch of makeup and she doesn't she's a beautiful young woman um but but doesn't look naturally does not look the way she looked that night when she went missing and the other thing that's tricky here too is you say may 24th but let's be clear. The whole evening starts on May 23rd. She goes out to right. dinner with some friends, and then she's going to go party and hang out with some of her friends at this. Uh, which one of the dorms was it that she was hanging out at? Was it and, Dunbar? Uh, I think she was, yeah. I think she was at, yeah, she was at Dunbar, and she was going back to Engelman, I think. So Dunbar Hall was an all-male dorm, and her dorm, that Engelman, was an all-female dorm. And so she was over kind of hanging out with some male friends that she had. These are people that she's known for, for quite some time. And um, from my understanding, the way that the, the the timeline plays out and the events of that night, she's kind of hopping from dorm to dorm and, and going around and kind of talking to uh, these different guys that she knows. And in some cases, there, there might be one guy there or two guys there, um, but... You know, most of the information online will say that she went missing on May 24th, and that's all fine and well and good and everything. But the reality of it is we don't know exactly what hour she went missing by. So to say that at 2 a.m. she was walking from dorm A to dorm B and somebody grabbed her or she vanished in that short walk in the middle of the night is a bit of a, you know, it's a good story to tell, but it's probably not factual. Mm-hmm. Um, she, something happened through the course of her night with people that she knew. Um, and that is what has ultimately led to her disappearance, not this walk from dorm to dorm. And so something happened late on the 23rd, early on the 24th. And then she's not reported missing until two days later on May 26th at 4.35 p.m. Uh, and she's reported by missing by one of her friends. Again, she was supposed to go on that trip. Uh, her friend, God bless her, was smart enough to notify uh, Martin's parents as well. And God bless them. They were smart enough that they reported her missing in Avon Lake as well. So uh, this is something that I would recommend anybody out there doing. God forbid any of us find ourselves in in this type of predicament. But if you, if you have a loved one that comes up missing and they are in another location, 
but they are from another location, report them missing in any location that they will accept the report. Just just file those reports because what happened in this case is Kent State didn't know what the hell they were doing. Yes. They didn't know how to investigate this. And you know, I, I'm not I don't want to throw too much blame and fault on them. They're they're a campus PD basically, right? They're they're there to break up break up beer parties and catch people smoking joints. Uh that's primarily what they are doing out there. Um the reason why this case has stayed alive for all of these years and the reason why you and I are sitting here talking about it today is Avon Lake continued to pursue this case for for quite some time and did a good amount of work on the Judy Martin's case and um, so I my hat goes off to her friend and her parents and family for um, going the extra step reporting her missing in multiple jurisdictions and keeping the case alive themselves and her friends are still we're talking 40 years later, Bill. They're still devastated. That's what kind of person she was. They're still devastated. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. By the loss of their friend all of these decades later. And um, every one of them had such wonderful things to say about this young woman. You know, it's really sad to see how basically the family never, they've never had any answers. The parents have passed away. The interesting thing that I, I've seen in the research, and I can see where the confusion comes in about the what her plans were for the weekend, because you do see reports of, yeah, she was no, she was going to go home that weekend, you know, according to her siblings, but you know, according to her friends, they were going to New York. So yeah, there are different theories on that particular, uh, you know, what she was actually going to be doing that weekend. So I, I'm a little interested in getting some clarity on that but it is definitely important for a family like judy's to do exactly what you just said and that is report her missing in multiple jurisdictions because then you get kind of all hands on deck and not that uh, see the thing about 1978 which is also it's just that era man like i hate to say it but like people did kind of just sort of disappear every once in a while and then come back but she just wasn't that type of person that's where this case hinges on you know i think police the kent state police you know you see some reports where you know the family met with the the president you know a week after the disappearance and you know they left the meeting unimpressed thinking you know they were just doing a kind of like a pr job trying to cover you know their tracks and you know clearly there was something that happened at Kent State that they were still trying to recover from. But again, it is a drop of the ball by authorities when they d just assume, make assumptions off the bat. You know, again, like, okay, she's missing. But again, how much did the Kent State police take that seriously? I think, like you said, the Avon Lake police took it a lot more seriously because they're not a college town. They're a suburb 
of Cleveland, and you know what? They've got time and cops that aren't there to break up beer parties and you know they're not campus police man i mean it's just they're real police not not to say that campus police aren't real police which i kind of just did but <laughs> i didn't mean to uh you know it's just more of like uh i i think it depends on on the the location and it depends on the department true. and and probably the the time that we're talking about here too and and true. i think a big key of this is is 1978 as you said the the time frame that we're talking about and yeah avon lake certainly took this a little more seriously and i i say that word because i don't know a better substitute i i just don't think that kent state knew what it was that they were looking at i don't think that they understood how to even conduct this type of investigation because of the lay of the land a college is a natural place for people to disappear and not for nefarious reasons. They disappear because they ain't liking school so much and they decide to go home or they jump ship at some point and decide to go off. And, you know, young adults are impulsive and um, we've all been there and we've all done that. And I, I can understand the campus police going, eh, we, this probably really isn't anything here. And, oh, even if it is, we really don't know what to do with it. So, like, one thing in particular, when you referenced her dorm room, and, look, her parents would be terrified to know and be told early on in this case that, yeah, we went into her dorm and it didn't look like anything was missing. You know, and, and she had eyeglasses and things, purse and things that, um, that, sh that, her family says she would have taken with her had she chose to go somewhere. And those items were still left behind in her dorm room. Um, one thing that I find fascinating about this case, though, too, while we're talking about items and possessions is from, from my understanding, Bill, you know, she's wearing a particular get up that night. This is a, the weird case where you can actually see you can see what the person was wearing on the last night that anyone is saying that they saw her alive and well. Most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, you're getting a picture of somebody with the description of what they were wearing or what their belongings were at the time that they were believed to last have been seen. So here we can we get the we get the images on her. You know, we get that wig. We get the the get up. Um, I think she even had some kind of costume type dress or not dress but purse with her that night and nowhere in the kent state investigation or the avon lake investigation have they said that they found any of these items as well and when i say that this case is an active investigation i i want to assure you it very much is which which makes me feel good because oftentimes 40 years into a case they're not active at all uh, this one very much is active, but we need to be pointing out to the listeners here um, so that there's no confusion about it. We're not looking for Judy Martins at this time, unfortunately. We're looking for her remains. And this case is really at a standstill until until her body is or remains are recovered. Now, I did see that her brother and her sister both submitted their DNA to the national database uh, you know, in case there is a missing uh, or unidentified body, 
that is recovered. So at least there is definitely, and again, that that just happened. I mean, I think they did that in the past few years, but still, I mean, that's like clearly they're still involved, and clearly there are people still interested in seeing resolution to this case. Back to the campus police, you also have to wonder how many people were, because it was a holiday weekend, did they either have, did they have more people on staff or did they have less people on staff because of the holiday? And if it was less people, then, you know, how many people do you have to investigate a possible missing persons? But again, it's college. And it is not even that, it's not even an insult to say they may have been like, well, she'll turn up, you know, like, I can see, because they don't, there's no blood, there's no sign of a struggle, there's no evidence that a crime had been committed other than the circumstantial fact that her belongings were still there, the fact that she wore contact lenses and her eyeglasses were left behind, and the fact that she, you know, didn't show up where she was supposed to be. But those are all things that don't point to necessarily a crime, especially if that's not what you're thinking about as a campus police officer in 1978. Serial killings and stuff like that, I mean, I know that was in the era of Ted Bundy and all that, but were they thinking like that? I mean, it doesn't sound like it. I mean, at least I'm from my... From my perspective of the research, it doesn't look like they took it as seriously as they could have. But I'm also not going to knock them for that because, like you said, college is a great place for people just to kind of tune in and drop out, you know? It's just... Mm -hmm. But it's just... It leads you to wonder about that ex-boyfriend because we haven't talked about that yet. And we have... Judy, who was in a long-term relationship of, from what I've seen, five years, which would have overlapped from high school, I'm, I'm assuming. And apparently he passed a polygraph test with the Avon Lake Police. So there you go, and you can see that the Avon Lake Police are the ones conducting the polygraph tests. You know, again, it's, it's the, the Avon Lake, I think the fact that the family is from there, the parents are there. I think that they they had a little bit more of a drive to find the, the answers for the, the Martins family because it really is, um, it does seem like they were the more involved police department. Yeah, 100%. And I, my guess here is, look, they they lived in Avon Lake and Judy grew up there. And so there's, there's a chance they either personally knew an officer or a detective or, you know, just, just know each other from growing up or living in the same tight knit community. And part of that though, too, Bill is so Jim Young is, or was Martin's boyfriend. Okay. And so he was still living in or near Avon Lake. You know, she grew up there. They were boyfriend, girlfriend from high school. Now, we should be clear here because when 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 you say, hey, they, they had a five-year relationship and she's a popular girl at Kent State and then they break up and she goes missing, 
wow, that looks like, oh, this guy came into town and did something terrible. It's only an hour's drive. Um, that's always a possibility. That's something that you're going to look at. But when we looked in, into that angle a little closer, one thing that we found was the dynamics of the relationship itself. It's easy to say it was a five-year relationship. The truth of it was it was a very much on-again, off-again relationship for five years. Um, as anyone that's had a high school uh, you know, high school love, if you want to call that, and college love, um, can imagine how those things work. From my understanding is she actually attended two colleges. So Kent State was her second college. And they... The two of them, and I can't recall what the first one was. No, Maybe she was OU. like me. She left OU. <laughs> okay, she left OU. Um, Jim Young, from my understanding, attended OU with her for some of that time. So She was there for that's two why years. The, yep, that's why the relationship carries over from high school to, to college. Now, uh, Jim Young goes back to Avon Lake, and she then decides to start going to Kent State. They were on again, off again, and from everything I could find, and this is what her friends were saying too, because, you know, she's relaying this information to her friends that it was kind of one of those things that when she goes home for the summer, her and Jim hang out a lot during the summertime. Mm -hmm. And then when she goes back to school, eh, they hang out maybe once or twice a month, but not so much. And Jim's an interesting cat to me, and I kind of see why they um, – I don't know if cleared is the right word to use with, with Jim Young, but he was definitely a suspect early on. As you can see, they gave him a polygraph, and they interviewed him several times. But I found some uh, the transcript from one of the interviews, and I guess the only legal trouble he had at the time. So part of the reason for their breakup was he liked to drink. He was a bit of a party guy. Yeah, she liked to have a good time, but she was a little more driven. She was working on school. She was working on building her life. And um, <laughs> he, the only legal trouble I could find for him was he, he fired a gun in his, the store. There's a few different stories here, but the way it sounds to me, Bill, is that he fired a gun inside his apartment and either shot out a window or or sh or shot a wall on accident. He could have been drunk. I don't know. But one part that was a a little funny in the transcripts of the police interview with Jim Young was they ask him. They're like, "Hey, do you have any guns?" And he goes, "Yeah, you guys know that I have guns. I was arrested for shooting out the window in my apartment." Like, he's very forthcoming. And <laughs> they go, okay. cleaning the gun. It probably went off. Well, listen to this. He goes, they go, okay, well, uh, where are your guns? He goes, well, you know I have guns because you guys confiscated them when you charged me with with firing this gun in the in the city limits. So he was still waiting to uh, go to court for whatever those charges were. You know, very misdemeanor type stuff. But his guns that he openly tells the police, yeah, I have guns and firearms, but they're in your possession because I'm waiting to go to court for these charges. So, um, and you reference serial killer and I, I'm, I'm imagining that you in your research there, you came across 
probably the name of a serial killer that has been tied to Posey. this case. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and that it would be one William John Posey Jr. And he uh -huh. had lived actually just about 10 minutes from the Kent State University campus. And one of the interesting things about Mr. Posey is that he pleaded guilty to the abduction and murder of an Illinois woman. And uh, I just said Illinois. <laughs> Illinois woman. He was uh, convicted in, of the kidnapping of Iris Brown in 1981. Now, Brown, mm -hmm. who disappeared in 1976, was never located. Now, that sounds familiar. This is from the Charlie Project. In 2008, Posey admitted he had murdered her. He never faced charges in the Martins' case, but is considered a person of interest due to his criminal history and his proximity to where she disappeared. And I cannot disagree with that one bit. What are the chances of Judy living, I don't know, within a 10-minute drive of a serial killer? I mean, I, I guess it's possible that he wasn't involved, but... What are your thoughts on this interesting character? So in that profile of him, how many people did it say that he killed? Was it two uh, or one? You know, I think he got convicted of one. Because I think yeah, at a later he's done date multiple, he confessed yeah, he's done, he's done, to another murder. Yeah, yeah, he's. I think he's. I don't think he was ever charged with it, but I think he admitted to another no. murder. Okay, and so the reason why he was never really charged with the other one, I think he was actually charged and convicted of the one victim's kidnapping, mm -hmm. but never of her murder. And then later he confessed to, he's like, yeah, I, I, I killed her. So um, William Posey's an interesting cat. As you said, he lives in or near uh, Avon Lake at the time that, that Martins goes missing. Near Kent, near Kent. Yeah, near, near Kent, I'm sorry. And so... Is there a chance that he's, you know, the random killer that you're looking for and it's a random attack and he just kind of snatches her up on, on the way home, on her walk home? She's walking home by herself in the middle of the night, attractive young college student. Yeah, there's a, there's a possibility. Uh, I would put the possibility at, at very somewhere in the margins of slim to none. Um, and I state that simply because... The Martins case is an active investigation. The The current agency that is working this case is not Kent State so much, not Avon Lake so much. It's the U.S. Marshals, okay? And this is a, a pretty top-notch organization right here. You don't mess with the Marshals. Now, the Marshals became involved in the Martins case because of William Posey. So if you look, his victims were in different states, okay? And that's part of the reason why the U.S. Marshals had to get involved. Now, the U.S. Marshals get involved and they're starting to hear these rumors of, oh, well, he was in the area at the time that Martins went missing. And, oh, we believe he has another victim that he kidnapped and her body's never been located. But the reason why he was never officially convicted of the murder, only the kidnapping of the one victim, is because he... He confessed all these years later to this murder. He was terminally ill. This was essentially a deathbed confession. This dude was not a great guy. 
obviously. He he murdered two women. But when we say kidnapped, if you look at those two cases, they're quite different than the Martins case. Both of those victims had the unfortunate commonality of knowing William Posey. These weren't random victims that he snatched up somewhere. These were people that he knew and that he killed. He's one of the rare types of serial killers that kill people that they know. And so he killed these two different young women, you know, so Martin's kind of fits the victimology profile for this Posey guy, but he's making a deathbed confession. What is a deathbed confession? Deathbed confession is you're trying to get right with God before you have to die. Because if you didn't, if you didn't receive proper punishment here, you might be getting it at the next place that you go to. And Posey wanted to try to get right. And so my guess here, Bill, is if Posey was our guy, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about an unsolved Martin's case. He would have confessed to it. And he basically said he was questioned about it. And he said, I, I did these other ones. I didn't do this one. And he has no reason to to not confess to this one. And in fact, in the one girl's case where they never found the remains, he physically actively tried to help them locate the room, the remains. They just due to the, to the, the time that has gone by were unable to do so. And so Posey's an interesting part of the story, but he's just that an interesting part of, of this story. Another interesting part to the story is the claims that, that she was alive and well oh, yeah. and decided to start living on the streets and uh, become a street worker, a uh, sex worker herself in the, in the greater Cleveland area. Yeah, I saw that theory. I'm like, what? That seems like a far-fetched. The more I looked into that, that was, that was a very interesting uh, lead because wasn't it her brother that went up and actually tracked down this particular person? On everybody's mind... On the local level, we're talking early 80s. The newspapers were still a big deal back then. And so this was a story that most people read. And one night, um, a, a working girl gets booked in the, the Cleveland jail, comes in. She's She looks somewhat like Miss um, Martins. And so somebody phones in at a tip and says, hey, I think we arrested the girl that, that's been missing for all these years. And so they get up there and they start talking to this girl and she does not deny being uh, Judy Martins. So that's going to start a whole weird part to this story. But the family ends up meeting this this young woman and says, you know, they felt bad for her. And um, it, it's weird because it sounds to me what adds to the public's confusion on this case is that the early reports state that that uh, Judy's mother said that, yes, this is Judy and her brother and father are like, nope, nope, it's not. Um, and sometimes, look, love is blind, my friend. We all know that. And um, when you are hurting, when you are heartbroken, you will see things and, and, and do things and wish for things so badly to be true um, and almost try to will them into existence. But um you know, it's it's really a a tragic story all around because you talked about her family and the brother and sister. 
giving their DNA, providing DNA to uh, law enforcement. And this is because you're absolutely right, Bill. They got no answers in this case for 40 years. No answers. All they ended up getting was some additional questions and then additional heartbreak. And this this young woman that was picked up in Cleveland um, was unfortunately uh, drug addicted and just just another sad part to the story, but it didn't really have anything to do with Judy Martins. And that's just like layer and layer of heartbreak for her family to, to get these near misses, right, on uh, what could be. And there's been several Jane Doe's throughout the years that they thought may be Martins, and it, it, it has not been yet, it has not turned out, out to be that way yet. So um, it's it's a really tragic, heartbreaking case, and it's one of those ones to me that I feel really bad for the family because not only was their daughter and sister missing, but then you get these additional gut punches every now and then, every few years of uh, of a Jane Doe or this uh, young woman that was picked up in Cleveland. That's a, that's a could be, but it's not, you know, just a, another, another blow to the heart there. And that is all the time that we have for this week's episode. So many thanks to Nick from the true crime garage podcast for joining me. And again, part two will conclude next week, next Friday. As always, I drop new episodes on Fridays. And if you guys enjoy this podcast you can help support the show by using my paypal username at william huffman 3 or you can do it via the venmo app with my username at bill huffman 3 now every contribution big or small does help keep these shows on the air now you can help support the show by leaving a five-star review as well on apple podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to your favorite shows now, those five stars do help keep the important cases that I cover, such as Amy's, in the spotlight. And again, if you want to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have coming down the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. So thank you guys so much again for listening. And as always, until next time, be healthy and stay safe. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.